Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Climate Tech's Ashley Cassio, Director of Energy Services, and Tyler Gertman, Regional Manager for Climate Tech, a Bosch-backed building technologies and energy solutions provider. Welcome, Ashley and Tyler. It's great to have you here today on the Public CEO Report. Hi, Ryder. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Of course. Good morning, Ryder. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So let's start with the basics real quick. Uh, who is Climate Tech and what exactly do you do for Climate Tech? I, I can start. Um, so I, I help run our public services offer our public sector services offering. So we do large scale energy infrastructure renewal programs for public agencies, uh, municipalities, cities, counties, school districts, to help them, you know, update outdated infrastructure and reduce operating expenditures associated with rising utility costs and maintenance. Wow. And okay. So Tyler, can I add a little? Yeah, Tyler, can you can you throw a little more meat on the bones and dirt? Like that's a big calling. What are some examples of some of the things that actually get implemented by you guys at these um, public agencies? Really, in terms of what we can implement is it's really customized per city. Uh, most recently, some of the biggest elements that cities want to focus on is power resiliency, how to keep critical infrastructure, such as command centers, wastewater treatment plants, uh, city hall IT infrastructure up and operational during rolling blackouts. Um, but beyond that, solar PV, battery storage, heating and cooling, ventilation, which we'll get into a little bit more here today. Um, lighting, street lighting, you know, again, when it comes to infrastructure, it, it's customized per city, but those are some of the key technologies that we're focused on right now. I mean, the truth is energy is everywhere around us. It's a um, pretty significant budget item in the operating for households, for businesses, certainly, and commercial infrastructure, city hall buildings, and cities in general, especially when you wrap in any water services or um, wastewater treatment plants. Those are massive energy sucks. So right. um, understandable that there's an, I mean, there's a huge sector out there that's trying to address this uh, energy efficiency. And of course, in California, we have a ton of regulations and policy guidelines that are driving us towards more energy efficiency. Uh, from everything I read coming out of Sacramento and certainly the decades of work that have been going on in the state of California to address issues like this. Mm -hmm. Could um, maybe Ashley and Tyler, just for a little bit more background, personal background, how did how long have each of you been involved in climate tech and um, the, beyond your titles, like how do you interface with customers or how do they get to know you and what's your role in those projects? Sure. So Ashley, let's, start, let's start with you, Ashley. Sure. So my background was in advertising and marketing, actually. Um, I worked in San Francisco at an ad agency and didn't even know how to spell, you know, performance contracting or energy services. It wasn't anything that I ever had um, my eyes set on. Um, I came over to Climatech a little over 10 years ago, actually to help in the marketing department and to, you know, help with proposals and just um, overall the branding of uh, Climatech and very quickly gravitated towards um, the energy services group and the work that we do in public sector. 
it was really exciting for me because I was used to um, the types of projects and programs that I worked on, you know, typically were a few months long. And, you know, you get you get a concept out, you put it out to market, and then you're kind of done and on to the next. And what's pretty cool about the work that we do in our group is we're working on a program, you know, from start to finish, sometimes for one to two years. So it's very strategic, requires a lot of critical thinking and um, just solving really complex challenges um, that, that are just inherent in public sector. And, you know, in my day-to-day, -day, what I'm doing is working with, you know, C-level city managers or CBOs or in a school district, the superintendent or an assistant superintendent and helping them to figure out how to, you know, improve their facilities and do more with less by, you know, just solving like really severe budget challenges. So, you know, cities and school districts that we work with, they have a lot of capital needs, but they don't have, you know, the capital funds available to pay for it. So how do you solve that? And then on top of that, just in terms of, you know, ongoing operating expenditures, there's a huge cost liability associated with doing nothing in the areas that we serve. So if a school district or a city just sits around and does nothing to upgrade their infrastructure, their costs continue to go up every year on their general fund. And so I just find it pretty exciting to help solve those types of, you know, bigger challenges. And then on a granular level, you know, we, you know, really are working with facility managers and helping um, to solve challenges in individual facilities and then bringing that all up, you know, in a way that works for council and a community. And um, it's exciting. Indeed. And then Tyler, how about a little bit about your background too and how you ended up working in this uh, energy services space? Sure. So my background's a little bit more technical than Ashley's starting off in marketing, but my background's in engineering. I went to ASU for mechanical engineering and was the first intern uh, part of Climate Tech about 15 years ago. And so started working with local agencies for, for that long and that long a time and really helping them, you know, fund and address the aging infrastructure and, and budget issues as Ashley stated. But for me, what excites me the most is these creative projects now and each city, each district is completely different from a school district wanting to add heating and cooling to community buildings such as the multi-purpose rooms to cities wanting to look at revenue generating opportunities uh, by utilizing their excess methane waste at their plants to, to sell clean renewable gas for trucks and waste management services, etc. So that to me excites me the most because it's so creative and so customized for the challenges that the city managers and superintendents have across the state. And then you, you bring that together with the great funding opportunities. And don't get me wrong, we need more funding for, for as big as California is, but the best funding is in California for these types of programs, whether it's from California Energy Commission to the governor's office. and bringing that all together to actually check that box politically and infrastructural and technically for uh, these cities is really what I enjoy. And, you know, honestly, when I grew up in Minnesota, both my parents worked in public entities. So I've been in this space ever since, you know, growing up. And it's nice to be on the other side of the table, actually looking outside the box, helping to solve these challenges that they have. And, and make them winners, make their city winners, and, and really just try to move that needle as much as possible for them. Right. 
Yeah, that's good stuff. So we got we got a marketing and vision brain combined with engineering nerd brain brought together on this call to talk about uh, all the sexy things that go along with the energy industry. I should also just note for our audience that um, our uh, my uh, marketing communication public affairs firm, Tripepi Smith, has been working with Climate Tech over many years now. Um, so I've had kind of front row seat to seeing some of the innovations and progress they've made in the local government market here in California and some of the great work product they do. Um, so I have enough background here to perhaps ask, be dangerous and ask, ask some, uh, some compelling questions of you both as we explore the sector a little bit more. So one thing I want to talk about real quick, too, that I think is important to emphasize is Climate Tech is a name that I think a lot of people recognize now in local government because you guys have been pretty aggressive out there and having a, a you know salespeople and marketing and really being involved in a lot of sponsorships with all sorts of associations uh, up and down kind of the size in all over California. Um, but at the same time, so Climate Tech has... I kind of perceive it as this um, uh, amassed super engineering group of energy specialists, HVAC specialists, uh, uh, technicians. At the same time, you're part of a much bigger entity with Bosch, uh, which is obviously this multi-billion dollar um, international conglomerate that has a lot of like capacity and R&D. Could you talk a little bit about the, the benefits of both that small Southwest focus that you have at Climate Tech combined with that big entity you have at Bosch? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the nice thing about it is it allows us to really be, you know, a chameleon when we're out in the market and we're able to make local decisions, you know, right at a job site or, you know, right at a meeting because we have that autonomy and we're not some corporate shareholder driven public company. Uh, which I really like. And we really are given a lot of autonomy to run our business the way that, you know, we want to run it. And actually our, the work that we do here in the States is actually modeled in other European countries and other markets that Botch serves because um, the, the method that we've figured out on how to approach this space um, has proven to be very successful. So that is a privilege. Um, and with the backing of Bosch comes a lot of assurance that we can offer our customers in terms of just long-term performance, because the projects that we do, you know, have life cycles of 15, 20, 30 years. And a lot of times there are, you know, performance guarantees and just assurances that need to be made to the public agency that we're going to be around to be able to, to back up what we promised. And I think having the backing of a company like Bosch just helps us to do our job easier because we can show, you know, that we're financially stable. We haven't changed our name, you know, a, a bunch of times and been bought and sold to, you know, different groups. Um, we, we have the stability and the financial strength to be able to back our projects. And I think that that helps us just to do our job easier. And, and Ryder, in addition to that, I mean, our R&D North American headquarters is in Sunnyvale, California. So any new sophisticated technology that's that's you know on the cusp of coming out we have access to those types of uh, platforms and technologies to integrate into our programs um, but they also give us the flexibility not to utilize those technologies most of the time we're working with our cities and public entities to uh, you know what they want to work on what they want to utilize in terms of equipment and being able to incorporate that but we also have this large bench of technologies and R&D experience for for new smart city battery storage type technologies as well that that are really moving the needle in in that in that space. 
One more thing I just want to add that you brought something up, Tyler. You know, in today's climate, I know we're probably going to talk about indoor air quality, but just a perfect example of this is there are so many emerging technologies coming on the market right now. Some of them have a lot of merits and some have a lot of concerns that public agencies need to be aware of because they're just not vetted yet. And being, you know, we had to have a, you know, go to market strategy on this very quickly on what type of air purification technologies and types of solutions that agencies should be doing to make their public spaces more safe. And within a matter of, you know, four to six weeks, we were able to vet dozens of technologies um, and review third third party, you know, case studies and testing analysis and have the backing of the Bosch R&D team to really figure out what are the technologies we should be recommending to you know our customers in, in today's post or current pandemic? And most, yeah. of, and most of them didn't even make it through that gauntlet, you know, yeah. of, of R and D yeah. specialists because you know it's a lot of these go to market strategies by others are just trying to make a nickel and a dime, and it really needs to work for the long term. So, so let's um, let's back up real quick to like a thirty-two thousand foot perspective. But Ashley, you're absolutely correct. I would like to get into. Um, HVAC and air quality, that's become a huge issue, obviously, in coronavirus and dealing with a pandemic. Uh, but before we get there, let's talk about how we actually, um, how you guys, how Climate Tech brings these projects together. So what is, can you just explain broadly, what is an ESCO or energy services company and what what is the space all about and generally why does it exist? Sure. So Energy service companies essentially are companies that specialize in helping public agencies. It's it's uh, escos are all servicing you know public sector markets for you know for the most part, and um, they specialize in helping agencies to take existing expenditures that are they're already spending in their operating budget. They're already spending on energy, gas, water, and maintenance costs. And instead of having to take on new expenditures to upgrade your infrastructure, these types of companies specialize in helping you to find savings in your existing budget and then redirect those wasted expenditures towards your infrastructure. In a nutshell, that's what, you know, ASCOs do and, and, and why and I think why agency public agencies turn to us is because we have the funding expertise to be able to pay for those improvements today and then you know pay pay back you know through the savings over time is is really the crux of it and it helps to just eliminate eliminate some of the hurdles that come from doing these projects on a piecemeal basis because i think if you're just addressing you know hvac units when they break or replacing some lighting here or just doing one off improvements it's really hard to get ahead especially in today's market where you know utility rates are going up drastically every year so to, I'm going to make this as simple as possible for our audience to understand. But at the end of the day, if I'm a city government, I'm mm -hmm. spending a thousand dollars a month on on energy, which I realize is a ridiculously no, low number, but we'll just use it for the example purpose. And the idea here is, uh, Climate Tech comes in, engineers a solution, builds that solution, right? So I, I I know it's not just a matter of you guys create the engineering plan, but you guys actually do the work. You're a general contractor to implement the work that needs to happen. Um, you deliver that solution, and then theoretically, after the project is done, the energy bill goes from $1,000 a month to $700 a month. That $300 savings is then used to essentially pay for uh, some sort of financing mechanism that was used to 
pay for that infrastructure improvement over the expected lifespan of that infrastructure improvement or something along those lines. Is that a, is that a fair statement in, in terms yeah, of how I'm describing to, it? That's a fair statement. And um, sometimes the financing mechanism is, is true financing. Other times it's a, you know, an entity using their own capital and just wanting to pay themselves, you know, back and have a return on investment, or it might be grant programs or other state programs um, that ultimately the goal is though that the, the program pays for itself through its own savings. It's, it's a budget neutral program. And, that, and that's the key to these energy services projects. And Ashley touched on it a little bit is the funding mechanisms that we can bring to the table that if you looked at these types of projects piecemeal, looking at heating and cooling replacement, looking at buying a generator or battery storage, you can't get to the funding that, that is available typically throughout the state to actually address these things. So when you look at it, at these projects and programs holistically and comprehensively, you can start bringing different funding sources creatively to the table from the different agencies that I mentioned before, and there's more, and really get and really you know get a project taken care of and more infrastructure done now. And each year that status quo or programs aren't taken care of, you know the cost of that equipment, the cost of those projects increase over time, as many of the cities have seen. Um, so it's really getting ahead of the game and reducing the financial liabilities of paying the utility more and more money. Because as you've seen, you know, with bankruptcies and other things going on right now with the utilities, where is that cost going to lie? It's going to lie in the ratepayer. And the ratepayer is not only us personally, but it's also, you know, cities. And so we're seeing, you know, big increases year to year in, in a COVID type budget where revenues are going down can't afford that. And you got to figure out how to how to be proactively in front of that to reduce your financial liabilities. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems to me like there's some combination of, I mean, there's obviously state incentives and programs that you've been articulating as funding sources to supplement uh, the additional savings that one just gets from the energy efficiency, but you're combining that expertise in the funding pursuit and bringing together big projects that yeah. will command um, or beget more uh, funding opportunity from the state combined with the expertise to actually know the core technologies that are out there that have a durable capability to deliver ongoing energy savings and put those to work, right? So it's this kind of combination of engineering expertise, well, funding knowledge and expertise and project delivery that I think helps make UNESCO more effective in doing what they do. Is that a fair there's description? A, there's actually a third element to that as well. And it's the technical piece that we need to figure out together and using the priorities of the city. There's a funding piece, what is palatable to the city to go after grants, utility dollars, CEC funding, whatever it may be. And then third, that that's almost most important is the political aspects of it too as well. We need to address those components and what are the key drivers for the city and the community and what's going to be a win for them, whether it's indoor air quality, better lighting, reduction in crime, things like that, we also focus on. So it's really a three-tiered approach, technically, financially, and politically, that we try to address. Um, and, and that's why we're working with city managers and superintendents and to really understand those priorities so that we meet those expectations as we're bringing this program together. So let's dive in real quick to like, who's the ideal candidate? I mean, we, you have heard you talk a little bit about school districts, and I've heard you talk about um, city governments as clients, and I suspect there's some other public, like probably counties, you guys work with counties too. But within that, who's an ideal candidate for a uh, public agency candidate for you guys to be able to help? Yeah, let's let's talk about cities first in terms of, you know, what's an ideal candidate there. So typically, you know, the cities are facing three main challenges right now. One main challenge, obviously, budget and budget constraints and loss of revenue from different sales taxes. 
Um, second is power resiliency. We're seeing that become more prevalent this day and age and mainly due not necessarily to the demand of electrical, um, you know, from, from people running, you know, being home more, et cetera, not necessarily from the demand, but because of the reduction of electrical production within the state, shutting down five gas powered plants has left a void within the electrical grid and it's only going to get worse. And so we're seeing cities really focus on power resiliency again for command centers, uh, critical infrastructure, police, fire, wastewater treatment plants. So that's a challenge that they're they're focused on. And then also, again, going back to the utilities, not only with the power resiliency, but also with the rates going up and the financial liability that that causes for cities when you're seeing five to seven percent increases. You know, so that, so they have these sets of challenges, and and typically most cities can't satisfy all of those different challenges, and there's not enough capital or funding to be able to you know, satisfy those needs. And so most, when you're looking at a city, most cities are a candidate for this type of program, um, unless they have the capital and the sales tax and, and the revenue to be able to get these projects done internally. Um, but it also, you know, this type of strategy provides them with an avenue to get these projects done quicker as well. Um, so most cities do qualify for this, qualify for, you know, can, can be able to do this type of program. Um, on the school side, that's that's very different because they have Prop 39 dollars, and so over the last seven years, you know, five years of that seven seven years, the program's been out there about a half a billion dollars worth of uh, grant monies on an annual basis that have been given to districts, and so a lot have done uh, renewable energy or or lighting, uh, but but most, and maybe about 60 to 70 percent, are still great candidates to consider this. Uh, type of program, and and they have significant need. You know, there's a local district that we just worked with that has been trying to put heating and cooling on top of their gymnasium for over 12 years since their last bond, and never been able to, you know, due to value engineering of their bond, haven't been able to get it done. But by us coming in and utilizing creative funding sources, using savings from lighting, irrigation controls, other different elements. We're able to fund and address and actually install new heating and cooling in their space as well. So it's just, again, you know, these customized strategies, but most um, cities and school districts are still uh, candidates for this type of program. And um, the nature of your work, and this is major infrastructure work, uh, I can't imagine it all happens in just one phase and you're kind of like, you know, one year, wipe your hands and you're peace out, you're done and delivered. And then you provide some annual reports to keep people posted on how they're doing with their energy savings. So could you or Ashley talk a little bit about um, kind of those, what those relationships are like over duration, many years, how that works out, the phasing that you typically see, maybe provide an example city where that's kind of manifest? Sure. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that makes me most proud of our team and just the reputation that we've built in the market is the fact that probably 70% or more of our annual revenue comes from multi-phase repeat customers that we've built long-term multi-phase you know, relationships with. And there's a few different reasons why you would want to approach something in a multi-phase approach from a city or a school district perspective, one, it gives us an opportunity to prove ourselves and build trust and show what we can do um, before they just 
you know, bite off the whole apple. Um, it, it's good. It's good. It's good for a city or school district just to um, build trust with the community as well. And then on our end too, I mean, it just might. It, there's sometimes so much need that just far outweighs maybe available funding at the time or what can be budget neutral at this point in time. So doing it under a multi-phase approach also allows you to get creative, address certain priorities. And then maybe once you've taken care of some, some of the immediate critical needs and started to build the savings performance of a program, you know, as time goes on, more, you know, creative solutions can come to the table. Like it's really common. We might work with, you know, a school district and maybe we help them with the, the first round is free dollars that are available from the state. And we're going to take care of anything that can be funded with those, you know, grant dollars right now. And then maybe in a couple of year, you know, couple of years, they pass a bond or something that gives them more capital to be able to invest in their infrastructure. We already have a master plan developed that can, you know, know, and then they know what are the next key priorities in line, and then they have the capital to do it, and they, and they, you know, can put together a program pretty seamlessly. So it's really common, I, I'd say, uh, you know, at least two to three phases of work is very typical on um, a typical uh, customer that we work with. And an exa- example of that rider is City of San Leandro, um, we started working with them almost six years ago and the immediate need was facilities, heating, cooling, upgrades, street lights, things along those lines. And we were able to bring funding to the table just to carve out, you know, this small phase one type opportunity again to Ashley's point, you know, starting to work with them, starting to prove ourselves, not only completing the project, and it was the first one through their community workforce agreement. So that was that was fun and interesting at the same time. But we were successfully able to get through that with them. And uh, and then, you know, a grant came available from the California Energy Commission. And we were able to help them with renewable power at their wastewater treatment plant and bringing that funding source to, you know, our, our great partnership with City of San Leandro and Jeff Kay and the city manager and Debbie Pollard over there. And sitting down and saying, hey, there's a grant available. You know, you do have to have a matching component to this. How do we want to put this together? Um, obviously, they were open to, you know, getting the largest grant uh, in that grant program awarded to them about $2 million. Um, and then recently moving to an additional phase to really bring the power resiliency elements with that renewable energy that was just implemented um, and bringing that all together at their wastewater treatment plant so that they essentially have a microgrid um, type type program there and using creative funding from the Bay Area and, and uh, different private sector dollars to make that happen for them. And again, each phase that we've walked through with them, they've third party vetted the savings you know, of the program. Has it been achieved? Are we seeing these types of progression? And they typically do a third party even in the design phase. Uh, so, so we've we keep checking the boxes and we keep working working well with them, and they're a great long term partner of ours, and really appreciate you know the time that we've you know had had with working with them. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That's a a great example to talk about. San Leandro is a very interesting town. It's a quiet little town. You wouldn't necessarily have to hear a ton about it, but when you go there, you realize they have super aggressive um, technology goals. They've done some fiber optic network build out in partnership with some of their public-private partnerships in this city, and they've done a ton of um, work with you guys, I know, just around 
uh, various infrastructure elements that are pretty impressive. So it's it's a great example of how you know even your smaller communities um, can do big projects and do big things that are really kind of leading the way. I think. I mean, if I think of cities in the Bay Area, they, they have to be one of the top cities that, in terms of leading the way on some of this innovation work, both around smart city infrastructure and the energy efficiency work that they've done in that community. Yeah, and just to add on, year over year, they're they're given awards, and Tony Patala over there is has been has been great on the CIO side, on the IT infrastructure side. He speaks a lot at these different conferences, but they're also uh, receiving multiple awards, and you know, top five smartest city in the world, you know, different various things along those lines, and they keep pushing with Mayor Cutter's vision. They keep pushing that um, edge and and keep moving forward. So yeah, definitely very you know, on uh, at the top in terms of sustainability and smart city focused. Yeah. So over the years that I've had the pleasure of working with you guys, we've talked, um, we've talked about uh, smart city infrastructure a ton because you have some technologies that can integrate with that in terms of mesh Wi-Fi networks on uh, streetlight infrastructure and taking advantage of the streetlight infrastructure work. Um, we've uh, talked about obviously budget crunch issues that come up and how to fund programs and capital improvements as you've already discussed. Right now, we are in a pandemic at the time we're recording this, we're, um, uh, we're deep into it at this point. Early on, when there was discussions about indoor versus outdoor air and what it was like to be indoors, there were lots of questions being raised about air quality. And one of the great, I guess, pleasures of my work that I get to do here, both with public CEO and Trepepe Smith, is that I know a lot of people who are experts in this space, right? So I remember picking up the phone, calling and having long talks with you and Ashley about like, what's going on with the air infrastructure stuff? You guys are the air nerds, right? Like you can you can talk about these things. What can we do to help address uh, the pandemic and improve some air quality? So this is HVAC is not normally a super exciting area, even though it's a massive energy user and offers a lot of opportunity for finding efficiency, but even more so in a pandemic, I think it's taken on a whole new life of interest. I mean, we got the opportunity to have you two on this call. Can we talk a little bit about air quality, what that means from a climate tech perspective and some of the technologies and um, elements you've seen out there to address air quality concerns in the pandemic? Sure, I, I can start. So, you know, pr prior to the pandemic, um, there were huge advances in just the Title 24 building code requirements um, for HVAC. Like, and I'll give you an example. At the start of this year, every new HVAC unit that's being installed was required to have MERV 13. This is pre-COVID. Um, and what's every, MERV 13? MERV 13 is a, is a rating for air filters that um, measures how much of the small particles it can actually take out of, out of the air. And we can get into that in, in, in a little bit. Okay. Um, but just it's a higher level of filtration that improves the indoor air quality in a space. Um, there were requirements that more, you know, every unit has to be able to bring in um, outside air, which isn't always the case in a public building or in a school. Um, you know, do you have to bring in fresh outside air and the fan has to be running. So I think that indoor air quality has been, you know, in the background, you know, maybe not at the forefront, but definitely been a focus on California building code requirements and in schools in school districts, particularly, um, just a lot of concern in this area. So it's not something new that we're doing in terms of improving indoor air quality. It's always been part of what we do. It's just um, more of a focus, I guess, now where people are wanting to really understand more about the, the impact that HVAC has on that. 
And the principal role that HVAC has in indoor air quality is just number one, making sure that you know fresh outside air is being brought in, that it's properly filtered. By filtered means that pollutants and airborne pathogens and smoke um, and then you know small particles from viruses, cold and flu season, mold, all of that can be filtered out of the air. And then you know taking it a step further in today's world. Those t instead of just ventilation and filtration, agencies are wanting to take it a step further and actually install technology that can absolutely, you know, kill airborne pathogens and actually disinfect the air. And there's, you know, two, I think, emerging technologies that are getting the most attention. One is um, something called ionization or bipolar ionization, you might have heard it called. And then the other is UVC. Um, which is just a, a different spectrum of light that actually can, you know, kill and disinfect surfaces in the air. So um, the big thing that we're, I mean, I talked a little bit about this as we had been, we've been vetting a lot of these technologies, you know, with Bosch and just with the PhDs on our staff that specialize in this. Um, we have found that ionization has the longest track record in terms of actually showing um, effectiveness in indoor air quality improvements. It's been used for a really long time in the aviation industry and in the healthcare industry. You see this being installed in airports all throughout the nation. It's in LAX and Phoenix Airport. It, um, it's in more hospitals than not. Mm -hmm. And now it's becoming a mainstream technology in public spaces, especially um, as schools are starting to think about reopening and bringing kids back. And so what ionization does is it um, charges the air with, I don't want to get too technical, but with hydrogen particles. These hydrogen particles, you know, attach on to any airborne pathogens and deactivate them. So if it's a virus, it, de it deactivates it. And it's been proved And this has, this technology has been proven on the coronavirus um, by number of studies. Um, if it's a, a bacteria, it acts absolutely kills it. Any smoke, mold, or other pathogens, it makes the particles clump together, deactivates it, and then it can actually be filtered by the MERV-13 or whatever level of filters that you have. So it's, it's active in-room sanitation and active sanitation of the actual HVAC equipment itself. And so that's where the conversation is mostly today, um, you know, uh, in this space. And I think that it's going to become mainstream to see these types of technologies in, in public spaces. The other technology you had mentioned was the UV light one, which sounds yeah, like so you, Yeah, so you, thank you for reminding me. So there's a few different applications for UV light. There's one that you can actually install UVC lighting in the ductwork of your HVAC system. And that's known to disinfect air as it's passing through. There's actual UV, um, you know, lighting fixtures that can be installed in a, in a room. And then there's uh, portable UV tech, you know, UV devices that can be used for sanitizing surfaces. There's even um, fans that are, you know, new on the market that um, have UV light and circulate the air and it's supposed to disinfect the air as it is it circulating. I think there's a lot of merits to UV light. Um, don't get me wrong. Um, and it has, there's a lot of third party 
uh, testing too on the types of airborne pathogens that we were just speaking about. Our concerns about installing this though in most public spaces is just that UVC light can't be on when humans are in the room. It's very harmful. Right. And so just the liability concerns associated with, you know, putting something like UVC lighting in a, in a school or a public space um, outweigh the potential benefits. And there's also limited data that shows that things like UVC light in, in ductwork can actually, actually uh, that it has enough time to kill any pathogens that are going because the, the air, the CFMs of how quickly the air is moving through the system are just going too fast to be able to actually disinfect the air, just, just based on what we've seen from the, you know, the case study results. So sure. I, I think in the UV application, what we're recommending the most are the, just the portable sanitation devices that can be used for, um, you know, sanitizing surfaces when nobody else is in the room um, or buses or other things that, you know, a lot of hands are on. Like I was at the Phoenix airport yesterday and I saw, on the escalator, it says, you know, disinfected with UVC light. And so they have just a portable machine that they put over the handrail and clean it a few times a day. Mm -hmm. You know, those types of applications seem to make more sense than truly, you know, installing it into your buildings, in, in our opinion. And this ionization technology, just to drill back to that, is that a retrofit option? So like, can you go back and install ionization yeah. into an yeah. existing system? Yep. And that's, that's, that's huge because the issue today with indoor air quality is the aging infrastructure of the heating and cooling units. And so any unit, as Ashley stated prior to this year, you know, if it's newer, typically it could be uh, utilizing MERV 13 technology, but the older type units 10, 15 years ago can't even handle a MERV 13 filter within the space. Um, but ionization could be added to those types of units because um, obviously, it could it could you know be in the space and and demobilize and neutralize these kinds of pathogens and contaminants. So, you know, you, you're looking at kind of different technologies for different situations. And and mainly as you're looking at indoor air quality, there's been a big focus on how can we upgrade our infrastructure. We have 20, 25 year old heating and cooling units. How can we upgrade those to the Title 24? type units now that we need to have to actually have better filtration for our space. Not only does it save energy, not only does it reduce maintenance costs, but it also can provide a cleaner, safer space for the community. So it's been a big focus, you, you know, recently with a lot of public agencies on that. Yeah. And Mike, I'll just mention, you know, just back to your question, it can be installed, you know, retroactively or retrofitted, and it can be installed on any type of system. Um, so even if you just have, you know, like a, a wall mounted unit or a rooftop unit or a very complex multi-zone unit um, serving mil multiple buildings or multiple rooms, it can, there's applications for ionization where it can be installed and it's, it can be installed pretty quickly and it's actually, re it's, it's relatively inexpensive to, um, you know, what you would think and even some of the other technologies that are on the market today. So, and at this point, are you finding as you're putting together programs and ideas for ESCO clients, you're starting to just default to integrating some of these technologies for future proofing and creating more resiliency in their HVAC infrastructure? I'd say so. I feel that, you know, 
more than anything, we have people coming to us because their communities are asking. You know, you have council members, board members asking, what are you doing in this space? They're hearing about it. And so they're looking for solutions from us. So um, it's being integrated for sure. I wouldn't say that it's a standard to always have it in there. I think the number one defense is having modern HVAC units like Tyler, you know, mentioned. Right. When you have that, you have MRF 13, enough ventilation. For some communities, that's enough to check the box. Other communities, they want to take it that step further and um, th they want to make sure that that's in there. And it's not, I would just say that it's not just a knee-jerk reaction to COVID. This is um, being viewed as a solution for protection for future cold and flu seasons and, you know, protecting indoor air quality when there's wildfires blazing all around you. Um, it, it's not just, you know, a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, well, agreed. I mean, if, if hopefully coronavirus is supposed to be a 100-year uh, event, right, one, one pandemic every 100 years, then mm -hmm. uh, theoretically any infrastructure you're putting in right now, the chance of being around for the next pandemic is relatively low. But the truth is, uh, you know, the technologies you're describing are applicable to any number of pathogens and issues, not just uh, coronavirus specifically. I think coronavirus has just solidified the perspective that there is merit to using some of these technologies to yeah. address the issue, right? Yeah. Um, it kind of, you know, I, I want to tie in a couple of things that we talked about here, too, because I, I try to you know, think about these things in a bigger picture. So cities... Um, I mean, you brought up wildfire, like air quality has been a huge issue. Cities are often, it often happens as during a hotter season. Uh, cities are asked to open up cooling centers, right? So we had um, clients of ours and other ink calls we were involved with where cities were really torn because they were on the one hand supposed to open a up a cooling center because it was 100 plus degrees. Um, and, uh, and normally they would offer these facilities, particularly for their seniors to come in, but at the same time, they didn't want to have a cooling center where they were circulating a bunch of cold air. And then they had seniors, um, congregating inside a cooled space. So they were really torn. And then you had air quality concerns too, because when it was hot, there was also wildfires going on and they wanted to be able to offer kind of a safe haven for their seniors in particular, uh, to be able to have a cool place, but do it safely. And I think they were really torn. And then on top of all that, at the same time, they want to do all this stuff you'll end up with power um, shutoff programs where uh, because of maybe high winds or some other issue, uh, the power companies are shutting down power, the power grid to prevent wildfires. Um, and so then you have cities scrambling to deal with that. I can just say, working with the city clients that we work with, um, you know, when those power shutoffs happen, it creates a lot of information churn and a lot of communications. And there's a lot of community angst and frustration over power outages. And, I, you know, we've seen some of the political blowback on that. But it seems like it's the perfect storm of uh, wildfires, wind events, uh, mm -hmm. high temperatures, air quality concerns and pathogens, and then a potential risk of a power shutoff that could blow up your ability to run a cooling center if you don't actually have any power running. I, I think about all that in the context of um, an earlier conversation we were having about um, resiliency in the power grid, right? And creating microgrids for um, agencies so that they can keep operating uh, even as the kind of the external macro environment might change on them. Could we just go back a little bit and talk about that kind of, what is that kind of infrastructure that creates that microgrid? Is that PV combined with batteries, combined with cogen, or what, what does that really look like to kind of enable that environment so that cities can, you know, for their core infrastructure almost not be concerned with, they can survive or get through a power shutoff event and just keep trucking and delivering for their communities. Sure, sure I'll take that. So in terms of the technologies that are involved on a, on a microgrid, typically it's a renewable energy type technology. So whether it's cogeneration, as you mentioned, which is taking gas and using an engine to produce energy, 
or utilizing renewable energy in terms of solar PV or wind or anything along those lines. Typically, if you're looking at a microgrid and you have renewable energy, you also want to consider battery storage. Battery storage, though, is still very expensive. Um, there are some funding programs out there, uh, such as a self-generation incentive program that for cooling centers, in that specific example, would allow for uh, really some great funding to actually put battery storage in in tandem with solar PV or other renewable devices. Um, and then and then just making sure that you have everything set up so that when the grid goes down and whichever utility provider that you're in, you can switch automatically over to your renewable or stored energy source to be able to operate and then obviously control your building to operate at the minimal levels of energy that's needed. You know, it's one thing to look at a microgrid, but you have to look at reducing your load altogether. So, you know, looking at the LED lighting, looking at the heating and cooling, the ionization, whatever that may be, building controls to actually control everything the most efficiently as possible, and then adding the microgrid element to it to really make it a, a self-sustaining facility for certain events, as you as you spoke about. So again, very different technologies, very different strat, very you know interesting um, strategies to put in place. We've seen generators used as well, and so you just want to have the redundancy and the resiliency to be able to you know keep those facilities up and operational. Just I just think you know historically we've always just assumed the power is going to be there. Um, and at least for the last couple of years, what we've experienced is we can't always assume that, I, you know, that's not me slamming on PG&E or Edison or SDG&E. They're all trying to do their own deal. We're obviously going through an evolution in our power grid in California and probably have some work to do on it. But um, when you can't just assume the power is always going to be there, you need to take steps as an agency to further secure your own power supply or methodology for being resilient in that environment to deliver those core infrastructure services and life safety services, frankly, at times that uh, that your public comes to expect and depend upon you for. Yeah. Um, so we we did a big deep dive on on air quality and we did a dive on, on power resiliency. Are there any other kind of technologies uh, or elements related to reopening uh, around coronavirus that you guys want to highlight that I didn't get a chance to ask you about? you know, maybe not so much a technology, but just the communication aspect of this and being able to proper, you know, it's one thing to make improvements in your facilities. It's a whole nother thing to be able to properly communicate that to the community and engage stakeholders to really let them know, uh, let, uh, let everybody know what you're doing in this space. And I think such a big part of what we do and, you know, the work that we do with you, Ryder, is being able to inform and communicate these types of critical issues in a way that people understand. So a big part of the programs that we're putting together for indoor air quality also involves, you know, putting together, you know, one page information sheets to just really demonstrate what a school district or city is doing in these areas. Um, and it is gone a long way, especially as, you know, parents are, you know, have concerns over sending their kids back to school, uh, city staff might be worried about coming back to work and what that means. And so I just think not taking that lightly, the, the element of being able to communicate is, is, is really big in this um, type of environment. So it's it struck me that, you know, a couple comments on that. Number one, a lot of the reason why cities are asked to do some of this work is, A, Sacramento can direct the funds to an entity they're already working with or collaborating with or dictating to, frankly. 
Um, B, um, the cities can serve as a example for the community, right? I mean, cities remain the most trusted form of government. When the when your local city hall does some infrastructure improvements and proves that PV can be a good thing or that battery storage is possible and pilots it, um, it can build confidence for the commercial sector. It can build confidence for residents to consider implementing some of those technologies. And the city is effectively living those values or demonstrating the values. So I certainly see value there. But of course, if you don't tell the public you're doing that work, then you don't really get the benefit of doing that. Right. And the third thing I think about there is um, a lot of the work we talked about you know, today, whether it's... Um, uh, let's say it's ionization systems that are up inside uh, your HVAC units or somewhere up in the ceiling, or it's, um, uh, you know, putting a, a solar array on top of a facility that's out in the wastewater treatment plant where most of the public doesn't really go, it. or it's yeah. a cogen that's just up like a box or a building that's sitting outside at a wastewater treatment plant. You know, the public doesn't really see that infrastructure. Um, and, you know, we're, we are a visual species. We, we, we need to see, see it to believe it, so to speak. Um, so I think about, let's say, examples of an LED light ret retrofit on streetlights. That's very visual. Your public is going to notice a difference in that light. They're going to see that infrastructure improvement. And it's easy to talk about and explain it because they can, their public can see it with their own eyes. They can't necessarily see some of these other significant improvements, right? You don't see energy savings unless you're actually looking at the bill and looking at the invoice and seeing it drop off. So how we go about highlighting that and explaining to the public and bringing them apart into the story to bring those things to the fore is I think super important for every agency as they both try to model good behavior for their community and also frankly demonstrate fiscal responsibility, right? That they're taking aggressive steps to um, offset future cost structure. Because the reality is, is if you can if you can save uh, $1,000 a month today on energy, um, and given the 5% annual clip you're looking at, like you'll be at a, a you know, you'll be at $1,250 within a couple years of what you're saving each month and just going from there. So you're, it's, you're avoiding not only the current costs that you're going to be experiencing, but all those anticipated increases in prices that are going to happen as utility rates continue to go up, or they do shifting on, on their models for kind of time, time and utilization uh, methods for um, billing on on energy use. So I think those things are really important. And obviously, I'm a big comms guy, so I love talking about that <laughs> stuff. But it, it just comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, overall, I think cities right now are just inundated, and and school districts just inundated with everything that comes with this pandemic environment. And you know. And not to mention, I think a lot of cities and school districts, too, because of this, are experiencing immense amount of turnover. And, you know, maybe people that were near retirement that just didn't sign up to be able to, you know, to, to, to deal with the fallout of something like this. And it's really sad because it debilitates an organization's ability to be able to effectively address this stuff, not let alone communicate about it. And so our... I think our job is just to help cities and school districts, instead of sitting and doing nothing in these areas, figure out creative ways to fund it, get the work done and do more with less resources and, you know, not add another job that when somebody's already wearing, you know, so many hats. Um, because I think that just the cost of doing nothing in this area, not just from a public health standpoint, but from a budget standpoint is just too great right. to, to ignore. Yeah. Wise words. Um, anything else we haven't covered today that you or Tyler would like to bring up before I bring this to a conclusion? No, I think we're good. All right. All right. Well, 
Um, that's today's report. My thanks to Ashley and Tyler for joining us today. From the whole public CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith, thank you for your time today. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Nice to see you. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.